Hello, Julia Campbell here with a very time-sensitive pre-roll. I have opened the doors to my brand new course for nonprofits, The Digital Fundraising Formula. It's a step-by-step blueprint to launching wildly successful online fundraising campaigns and a formula that you can use over and over again. And the doors are only open until September 20th. Class starts September 20th. So go to digitalfundraisingformula.com digitalfundraisingformula.com and take a look, sign up, register. And I really hope to see you on the inside. All right, let's get to the episode. Hello, and welcome to Nonprofit Nation. I'm your host, Julia Campbell, and I'm gonna sit down with nonprofit industry experts, fundraisers, marketers, and everyone in between to get real and discuss what it takes to build that movement that you've been dreaming of. I created the Nonprofit Nation podcast to share practical wisdom and strategies to help you confidently find your voice, definitively grow your audience, and effectively build your movement. If you're a nonprofit newbie or an experienced professional who's looking to get more visibility, reach more people, and create even more impact, then you're in the right place. Let's get started. All right. Well, we are here. Another episode of the Nonprofit Nation podcast. And I'm here with my friend and colleague, Mark Pittman. Mark, thanks so much for being on the show. Thanks for having me. I'm so honored to be here. I'm so excited. Mark and I, we go way back, but my favorite memory is when we ate so many cheese curds in Milwaukee (laughs) that we felt sick, or at least I felt sick. I'm not sure if you felt sick. And that amazing cheese store. That was incredible, wasn't it? That was amazing. I don't think I've seen so much cheese in one place. I dream about it. And then they had cheese samples. Yeah. So that was incredible. And we went to the Pabst Blue Ribbon Brewery. That's the memory I have is sitting down at the patio at Pabst, drinking our PBRs, talking about cell phones and stuff. I know. (laughs) Oh, I know. That was really fun. And that was when we kind of really got to know each other outside of work. So I was excited about that. So... I want to start out with you and your story and how you got involved in the work that you're doing today. Tell us a little bit about what you do today well, I was and born, how you got involved. Born at a young age. My parents' names were mom and dad. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> right. no. <laughs> so yeah, I grew up in a family that was very conscious about... My parents were going through... They're always lifelong learners. And they were going through phase of leadership education around the time that I was becoming a teenager. So I learned a lot about leadership and goal setting and all as I was going through school. Thought I was going to be a pastor, thought that was going to be what I was going to do, pastor in uh, churches in Sweden, because I picked up Swedish in the you know, in six months when I was there. And so I figured that must be a part of my my leading, but ended up shockingly falling into a fundraising position. I mean, most people plan that, don't they? Uh, no, no. I'm just kidding. I'm totally kidding. <laughs> I'm saying I definitely didn't plan it when I started doing it. You couldn't fundraising. see it, but the look on Julia's face was uh, <laughs> not in my experience, Mark. Yeah, no. So I Does I, everyone I, plan it? No. Two of the things that I made fun of people for doing after college were getting married right out of college because, like, have some life. Uh, go. And I got married the week after to my <laughs> wife. Uh, Wait, 20, you went to college Gordon, right near in you. my town. Yes, it's right. That's right. So, um, and we're now 26 years married. Um, so that's that was a good choice, but I made fun of people for that. And the other one was getting a job at the college I graduated from because mm-hmm. I figured it was like the end of Ferris Bueller's Day Off when he comes out of the kitchen is like, it's over. Right. 
go home. It's over. And go so home. that's why we thought about college is we, you're here to be prepared to be sent out to leave within a month of graduating. It turns out, uh, fortunately, we had really good mentors in our life that in, informed me that 80% of my income should not be going to rent because I was in South Hamilton or in Hamilton with a little duplex new thing. And so we moved numbers of times, but we ended up moving, uh, living in a, or being an admissions dr- uh, director at Gordon. And then the life mission and purpose felt very pastoral. I loved helping kids identify what their calling was, what their next step was with the freedom of saying, this isn't a good fit for you. Here are some other good fits. So there was no pressure to, I had goals to meet, but there was also very, very much an openness of letting discernment play its course. And the fundraising folks said, you know, you get to do that year round with donors. You don't have to stop on May 1st. Because I don't know if you've ever done admission stuff, but after the kids make their decision, the students make their decision about where they're going to go, it's really creepy if you stay in touch with them because they're either moving on to student development right. or they're moving on to another school. And so you've had these really formative and, and uh, energizing conversations with them and then you're done. Uh, but yeah. with donors, you get to talk passion, mission, vision, values for years and years. So that's why I found the fundraising uh, shock that people didn't know that fundraising meant raising funds. So asking for money is very normal for me. And uh, I get to apply all the stuff I learned from leadership in that. and. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's been fun ever since. I mean, it, not all fun, but I really, I, I love connecting people with causes. I think that many of my listeners will know you as the fundraising coach. Yes. They'll know you, the little bow tie and but on your logo. Sure. <laughs> um, my business card. Yeah. Yep. And I've seen, oh, the, yes, the bow tie business cards. Oh, I love those. So what we're going to talk about today, though, is a little bit of a, a different topic, something that you've been doing for a while, but I don't think something that a lot of my nonprofit listeners will will necessarily know about, but this book. So I want to jump to your latest book. Now, yes. someone was telling me it's your eighth book. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I know. Okay. It was some, it was really weird when we moved to Greenville, a board member for a local nonprofit was meeting with me. And he said, I went to Amazon. You've written, and he knew how many books I'd written. And so this would be my eighth as far as I know on Amazon. Yeah. It's weird. Fantastic. So the book is called <laughs> The Surprising Gift of Doubt, Use Uncertainty to Become the Exceptional Leader You're Meant to Be. And just right from the first page, well, first of all, I love that you, I love love that you start out with a note on privilege and a note on how you are working and and how you're committed to amplifying diverse voices in your book and in your work. So I love that. But secondly, it truly spoke to me. I felt really almost attacked by this book. Oh no. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I felt seen because ah. I've been in business for myself for 11 years. I've been successful I've written books, I've been speaking, I've been all over the world, and I always have that nagging feeling that the other shoe is going to drop, that I'm going to be exposed, that I'm going to fail, and it drives my husband bananas. Once every three months (laughs) or so, I will have a complete breakdown and say, oh my gosh, like things are going well this month, but what about next month? And he'll say, you have been on an upward trajectory for 10 years, <laughs> even during COVID, even during pandemics, even during recessions. So I was just having wanna, this conversation yeah. with my, uh, you probably with my had too. a million of these conversations. Well, well, cause yeah, we've got, our oldest is going to be graduated from college next year, but then there'll be two in college and in the next two years. So I'm already like, 
well, what if, you know, what happens in two years? Because as you know, self-employment, there's no net. There's not really a, much yeah. of a net in, my, in other employment as other people have found. But yeah, I get it. I get that. I'm, exactly. I'm enjoying this because it sounds like we, yeah, similar so conversation. What inspired you to write this book? I have always been a leadership guy. So I went, when I went to Gordon, I went to, I was in a leadership cohort. I got a scholarship to do leadership studies rather than getting my CFRE, which is a certificate in fundraising uh, excellence. I got my master's in organizational leadership. And then rather than get my CFRE again, I, I got my uh, Franklin Covey's leadership coach certification. So I, I've been really blessed to have coaches, both in college and life coaches. And then in another career, another job I had. And as I've been working with leadership, with emerging leaders and leaders in nonprofits, and uh, I've noticed that, well, I've always seen fundraising as a leadership mm-hmm. issue. Mm-hmm. If you don't know where you're going, it's hard to invite people to join you. And so that's, I've always had this leadership lens. So when I niched as fundraising coach, my wife got upset because she knew me as a mission, vision, values guy. And I knew that fundraising coach had implied ROI and could teach people how to fundraise. And that I'm blessed that I've been able to do that well. But this is the book I've really been wanting to read. And she said, this is probably the book that I've been write, wanting to write, I mean, since before I, she knew me, you know, yep. decades ago. So this is, I've had six or seven iterations of this. I've tested it out as keynotes. I've done intensives together, but it was basically to answer the question of what do you do, Mark? Because I'm an executive coach. And so you say, oh, okay, executive coach. And then you'd see people back when we were meeting together, they'd cock their head and go like, so what do you do? Right, right. And I couldn't figure it out. And it's only been in the last few years where with the frameworks that are in the surprising gift of doubt that I was able to actually describe, this is this is what I do. I help take people that are nagged by persistent self-doubt and help them reframe it to see maybe it's an invitation and, and a, a sign that you're you're on the verge of greatness. Yeah. Maybe you're not broken. Maybe yeah. you're you know about to explode. Not I in a bad that's way. What I what I <laughs> liked about the book explode is, is a bad word. It's sort of like or vi- virality to... or pan- yeah. <laughs> I don't want things to go viral in a pandemic. You know. <laughs> oh gosh, I didn't even think of that. That's oh, a yeah. dad joke. I removed all the going viral, infectious joy. I tried to remove that all from my website right when the lockdowns oh, happened. Yeah, I have not removed any of that. I, re- I did not even it, think about but... that. But that is definitely a dad joke. So I appreciate it. So you are you were blurbed. I totally fangirled over this. By Seth Godin and you know, Dory so cool. Clark, who honestly, I've read every single one of their books and I have post-it notes. How did that happen? How did you... Get in touch with them. So Seth, it was uh, years. I I asked him. He was the first person I asked to blurb my book, and he did. Um, he said, "I can't." Well, part of what I did was I said, "I bet you get asked this all the time, and it's totally cool if you don't have time." I totally respect that. But if you do, I'd be honored. Mm-hmm. And he said, "You asked well, thank you, uh, but I don't have time." And that was on a Wednesday. On a Friday, he blurbed my book. Yeah, he responded back with a book blurb, and the post my publisher noticed the post that he did on that Friday was on doubt. Oh <gasps> yeah. No. So it was like he read the book because he I does. Have to go back. Yeah, it was you so got his, cool. You got Seth Godin's wheels turning. So it was really, yeah, that's such an honor. And he and I had met, I don't know if he remembers this. He we met when I was on Long Island. He was doing a day at his loft and he had all these mega multinational corporations oh in. You'd spend fifteen hundred dollars and spend a day with him. And I said, My you know, boarding school doesn't have that budget. Is there a nonprofit rate? If there's not, it's totally cool. I get it. Mm-hmm. But he said, Why don't you just come? So he invited me to hang out around when Purple Cow came out. Oh um, and then when he was doing his Icarus talks in Boston, I mm-hmm. got to do a uh, an Icarus talk. Yeah, I was one of the few people chosen to get up on stage and 
do uh, 140 seconds, or I think it was 140 seconds wow. or 280 seconds on, uh, I called it the archaeology of fundraising. That's um, amazing. Yeah. So that was cool. Dory Clark and I have known each other. We're part of the National Speakers Association. We've been part of some speaker mastermind groups together. Oh, and wow. um, she's just really generous. Uh, she's she's just, so really amazing. Kind of yeah, she's I'm just amazing. such a huge fan. So two other authors for everyone to check out. That's yeah. just so cool. I mean, it just speaks to your level. Well, first of all, your, your talent, but also your level of k- keeping up relationships people just really like you. They just, well, and that's what I've been, I found that it was, uh, that's one of the things about relationships, being sincerely curious about other people. I got 30 endorsements and I intentionally got, I think it's 60% are women and people of color or more. So I really tried not to just go to white men because I've seen a lot of books that are all white men and Mm -hmm. there's reasons for that. And there's also blindness for that. And I know my blind spot. So I didn't want that, but, um, it was, the publisher's like, you've got too many. <laughs> they can't put them all on Amazon <laughs> right. because people are just so generous. And, and Julia, this is the type of thing, oh. you know this from writing books. I, I've gotten blurbs before, but these blurbs all came with a, here's my blurb. And Mark, page 62 is really rocking my world right now. Yes. Or page 84. Oh my goodness, I needed to hear that. So it was, it was this interesting mix of I'm helping you, but I was helped by helping you. Thank you for thank you for asking me to to get, endorse your book. That's it's amazing. huge privilege. Yeah. Well, that's wonderful. Um, I do want to talk about a couple of the things in the book. First of all, I want to talk about Enneagram type. Yay! So you know that I've never taken the Enneagram. Can you believe it? That's... People always look at me and they say, "Oh, you're an Enneagram eight, or and I'm I never know what that means. So first of all, I want to know what type you are. And what does that mean for your leadership style? Mm. And then what type do you think I am? Because I was looking through the book and I think I have a couple of ideas, but I'm not sure. So uh, what type well, are you? So because I would say this, even if this weren't being recorded, but I will tell you my type. Enneagram, two things is one, assessments only help you sort through the numbers. It's it's an internal wisdom tradition thing. So it's, you know, you best. So it's what motivates you. And I'll explain why that matters with my number. I try not to type other people because it's yeah, disrespectful. Yeah. Um, and I do put that in there. So if you're an eight, right. I can this tell you about that. And so for people that are listening, um, Enneagram is an ancient tradition uh, that seems to have been really, we know the teachers in the last couple hundred years. It's global. It's not North American, which is all my assessments, except for the Highlands ability. And one of the things I like about it is it doesn't just say what you do. It doesn't just observe your behavior, but it gives you a, a, an idea of why maybe you're motivated that way. So my type is a seven, which are sevens are in the head center triad. Fear is right under the surface. So I'm not in touch with my fear, but I'm uh, now that I've done a lot of work over the last 30 years with the Enneagram, I am. But and I don't know if it's self-referential or you know whatever self-confirming bias, but I don't think it is. What it means to me as a leader, though, is that I need to grow in getting and staying put on a topic instead of just being constantly distracted. And when I'm in stress, I tend to go to the black and whiteness of one or the right or wrongness, the moral right or wrongness of there is only one way to do things, and it has to be this way. And it's not because it's my way; it's because this is the right way objectively, which you know none of us are objective. So. The Enneagram has shown me areas of, oh, maybe I'm in distress, or maybe I just need to draw from this energy now because I do need to have some right or wrong. It's not all things are okay. Mm -hmm. But as a seven, one of the things I love is that um, 
the negative of a seven is they're constantly reframing negatives. They're oh. making everything positive because they're, we're afraid that if we feel just bored or mundane or normal, that we're going to go into the chasm of depression. And, uh, and depression is just another, I mean, that's, I'm not saying that as a bad thing, but for sevens, it's like, I don't know what's down there. I don't know what all these negative emotions are. So we're just going to stay on the upper half of the emotions. And when we start getting to kind of like, just, this is a normal day with nothing exciting. That's scary to us because we feel like we're falling off a cliff. What's good for me though, as a coach is I can take anybody's failure or hardship Mm -hmm. and I can see something positive in it without even having to process it. It's just, well, yeah, that happened. And do you see how this is positive. And so as a coach, what many people are asking me to bring to them, they, what they value is my reframing and the way I put words on things. The reason we don't tell people this, and this is, I'll, I'll sum up with this, is mm-hmm. that most people think I'm a, a three because I'm outward focused, because I get goals done. I do things. I look successful. And threes embody that. But I know that my motivation isn't a fear of failure. I'll tell you about my failure. If I screw up, people me call too. me a WYSIWYG kind of guy. Because yeah. why not? If I can help you from making the same mistakes I made, why wouldn't I want to? Yes. Um, it's no need that we all skin our knees. <laughs> why mm-hmm. wouldn't we do that? So I know I'm not a three in part because the motivations of a three, although I have outward appearances, that's not what motivates me. What motivates me is new and exciting. And that's why I'm a speaker and, and I'm a coach because I can go in and do some things and then pull out without having yep. to implement it. I can help people implement it as a coach, but I don't have to yeah. watch the paint dry on the wall. Everybody thinks I'm a three and I never really knew what that meant um, until I read this book. I'm pretty sure that I'm a body-centered type. So anyway, you can read all about this, listeners, in the book. But what I want to get to is how can if you're leaders an eight, use your clients are really psyched if you're yeah. an eight uh, because eights are their their one of their superpowers yeah, is like protecting the people around them. And it's because they don't want to be bullied so that they protect and they build up a protection around them. Eight women in our culture tend to be some of the most maligned people on the planet. Um, and so misogyny really takes and does a toll on eight women, but we need them. And uh, I know some really cool Enneagram eight women. And if any, your clients are blessed because you're doing stuff to protect them, your family's blessed because you're doing stuff to protect your family. So um, there's a lot of good yeah. and a lot of different types. But I definitely felt like I was the seven, eight, and nine. I don't know. I really, it's interesting because it's like horoscopes. When I read them, I always find something that I yeah. relate to in each of them. But and how, that's the thing about yeah. being human. That there is that self-confirmation bias. Right. And that's where you have to take all of these assessments should be a, a help, not a mm-hmm. label that confines you, not something yes. that, uh, that limits you or limits others. Oh, you can't possibly do that because you're this number or that letter or that whatever. So as long as it's helping you grow and develop and, and, and be a better you, then that's, that's where, where they're really helpful. Hey there, I'm interrupting this episode to share an absolutely free training that I created that's getting nonprofits of all sizes, big results. Sure, you've been spending hours on social media, but what can you actually show for it? With all this posting and Instagramming and TikToking, does it really translate into action? In my free training, I'll show you exactly how to take people from passive fans to passionate supporters, and I'll give you specific steps to create social media content that actually converts. Head on over to nonprofitsthatconvert.com. Again, that's nonprofitsthatconvert.com and start building a thriving social media community for your nonprofit right now without a big team, lots of tech overwhelm, or getting stuck on the question, what do I do next? 
let me show you how it's done. I can't wait to see what you create. How do you recommend that leaders use this framework in in their work or to become a better leader? How do they well, how do they use tools like the Enneagram? One of the things that I think that self-doubt we talked about before does is it brings you into just usually what we're given as leaders is we're given half the map. We look at, there's a confidence access, and then we just look externally for our cues because we've looked for report cards growing up. We've looked at what parents say, coaches say, bosses say. And so that's how how we grade our performance is by what other people say about us. And that doesn't always work because not everybody else's solutions don't always fit us. So doubt can help us bring into the other half of the map, which is looking internally. And assessments can be a big part of that. If you're a leader that is trying to copy extroverts and you're an introvert, you're going to get fried because extroverts love chaos. They create systems, but they don't like to keep them. They'll change them the next year. I knew one extroverted, active-centered, active-type leader of a multinational nonprofit that changes leadership structure every year because he just wasn't sure if it was right. So people didn't know who was reporting to whom for any given year. I mean, the amount of chaos that created in the organization was huge. It was not helpful. So getting to know your own tendencies and getting to know kind of what your knee-jerk reactions are, um, like, ooh, I'm going to that again. Why? Like what I was mm-hmm. saying, when I start going to this, there is a right or wrong and I'm not doing it. Usually it's me beating myself up, but I'll beat other... I, I will like verbally get really angry mm-hmm. with people. Like when the Uber driver is at the wrong gate at the airport. I remember being on the phone. I was like, I told you this gate. And my wife said, you're an, stop being an angry white man. Just be kind to that man. <laughs> so it can help you learn your own knee-jerk reactions and why you reframe the world. I love it as mm-hmm. leadership a leadership tool too, because it helps you to see that not everybody sees the world as you do. Yes. So if you're trying to talk to a board member or a donor or a staff member and your message isn't getting through and you're like, darn it, I'm trying to speak your language. Yep. These can give you different ways of speaking the language. Uh, if, if, People Google uh, increasing influence in my name. You'll get to a keynote I did on the Enneagram and how you can Hmm. maybe speak the story of each of the nine types to get the same message across, but speak the dialect. So you're kind of hitting their, their, you're honoring what they value or what's important to them. I remember seeing a keynote that Kashana Palmer did one time, Mm. how she talked about managing a team based on the love languages, the book. Nice. The four is there four or five love languages, five. and it was so. But I only remember four at any given time. Good, <laughs> right? <laughs> it was just so appropriate because yeah. everyone responds to praise differently. Everyone responds to different drivers, different motivators. I've taught that um, with donors too, because some yep. people don't want to be up on stage or they don't care about the gift. You know, so many development offices are thinking about what's the trinket, what's the the thing that we send them, and so many that might be their care. love language. Exactly. exactly. Yes. Right. Right. And if you know that too, you can know. All right. Well, maybe if nobody's giving me a gift and gifts are my love language, maybe I need to buy myself a gift, and yeah. that's totally legit. That can be a way to recharge your batteries. So, oh, all right, cool. <laughs> All right. Um, well, yeah, that's one of the things that ha- that really yeah. in, in nonprofits in particular, but I, I find this in for-profits mm-hmm. too. The mm-hmm. higher we rise in leadership, the less cover we get and the more risk we 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 take because there's more impact that can be made with our decisions. And um, we're, I, I've been playing with this model of a triangle. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you have a, have a triangle, it's the three focuses of leadership. There's, there's the team or 
the clients or our staff, I mean, our team or staff is one focus, our clients, customers, mission, whatever our services is the other. And then the, and then the third point is ourselves. Mm-hmm. And most leaders get, yeah, I got to focus on the clients or the customers or the, or the, or the mission that I get. And some of them get, I've got to focus on the team, but a lot of them don't because they don't focus on themselves, which is the third. So they don't, focus on their team because they just want to get the mission accomplished, especially in nonprofits. Nonprofits are usually started by really, really awesome people that can see problems, but don't think about building organizations because they just want to solve the problem. But if you get the team and the clients and you're still having to taking time for yourself, taking it two hours out of your week to learn how to be a good leader, how to cast vision, how to interact with people, feels like you're cheating because you're not actually... Most of our work life is checking boxes, you know, crossing tasks off a list, but growing as a leader isn't having all the answers anymore. It's being able to have the questions and make uh, having a bigger vision or a broader horizon, seeing more of the horizon. So it's that all of that, I think that's where the internal cues is you get to know yourself better and you can start seeing things from a different perspective mm-hmm. and at least appreciate why you see something the way it is and, and honor the fact that, well, maybe this isn't the entire then being married has been that for me. I could see one (laughs) part of the horizon, but then I realized that, oh my goodness, we pastored a church for four years at one point. And uh, it was two years in my, my wife got like, she read people well. And I thought she didn't in the first year. And then the second, I made it all about sorts of excuses. In the second year, I realized she does. She is incredibly accurate with her reads on people, but I didn't admit it until the third year. <laughs> I finally, it was like, okay, okay. I, whatever I see isn't necessarily the entire the entire story, and I need to honor that and try yeah. to check in with people I trust. I think it's interesting you brought up in the book an example something I see in nonprofits all the time, where just because you're good at your job doesn't mean you are an executive director. <laughs> so I remember my very first director of development job. I worked at a domestic violence shelter in Virginia and I was a really good director of development and marketing and they wanted to offer me the executive director position. And I said, I, wow. I don't really, I don't think I would be good at it. I don't really want to do it, but that's what we're taught. Like the next trip, you go from volunteer to intern to associate to director, mm-hmm. and then you have to be the CEO. So I, I'm not sure how we can get out of that pattern, but well, we and that's why that it's so book. important to know ourselves early in our leadership development yes. or in our career because I knew that too. One of the things I I saw with fundraisers is you you start out with smaller gifts, you move up to major gifts and capital yes. campaigns, and and then you do um, manage major gift officers. But I saw a lot of frustrated managers because they loved the sale, the hunt. And I know I said the S word, but there was a part of there's a part of a game and a mm-hmm. journey in an a an exploration that fundraising gives. And it gives you a quantifiable measure of, yes, I've raised the money or I haven't. Um, I've retained donors or I haven't. There are some statistics that you can go to that you don't have control over when you're managing in the same way because you're working through people. The best fundraising manager I've ever seen was somebody who didn't do fundraising at all. She knew people. She knew their goals. She knew their styles. And she let them do their goals and styles with the best fundraising research, she made sure to get that inside, but she didn't try to replicate herself in them, which is often what we do when we're really good at something. We try to be, make a bunch of mini-me's instead of letting people flourish with their own strengths. So I knew that I, I, I saw so many frustrated people with that. And the other thing is another assessment I did, Highlands, which is uh, you do meaningless tasks and there's time pressure and you find, your, you find what comes naturally to you. One of the things that comes naturally to me is moving around. 
most of the people that are managing fundraisers aren't traveling. And so that one of the, one of the iterations of that is, is it's probably better for me to have a traveling job, a job that forces me to get up and, you know, non-pandemic times. And so that's one of the reasons I didn't do that. It was because I knew that would be a lot of stress and my family deserved more than a stressed dad mm-hmm. or husband that was paying the bills. There are other ways to pay the bills. And so it made it very hard for me to be hired though. So warning, full disclosure, I had a headhunter say, oh, I understand your resume when you narrate it to me. That makes a lot of sense. I can't get you to this. I was a boarding school I was looking at. I can't get you to this uh, boarding school near you, actually. I can't get that boarding school to even look at your resume because they want the started at this level, moved up to this one, the logical progression of career. So there's, yeah, something's got to change. I think you know what's going to really change it is that we have a lot of boomers that are going to be retiring or forced out. And we have a lot of millennials that haven't been trained, not because they're bad. It's just because we don't do a good job of doing leadership development. And and the millennials are awesome. Millennials and Z are awesome because they actually live their values instead of just give them lip service. Mm -hmm. So if the values aren't there, they're leaving. And it's it's forcing already organizations to actually live what they believe or say. And I love it. I think it's so good for our our wow. culture. And I think we're going to really transform organizational development in the next maybe decade or two. I think there's good changes at foot. Hard changes, but good changes. Oh, there's so many different things we could talk about. I just want to talk about, I'm think I'm looking at all my notes and look at my, if you can't see it, but the book with all the post-its. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> oh, that's so um, there's cool. just so much to talk about. I think what maybe one of the last points is you talk about goal setting in the book, which I Mm. love. And I love the Pittman family homework, the story that you tell (laughs) of, I'm now considering doing that for my children, um, how you always were listening to to podcasts and books about leadership and goal setting and project management and that kind of thing. I love that story (laughs) that you told, but where do leaders get goal setting wrong and sort of what, what is one one quick tip. I know it's okay. it's so much quick more tip. than just one quick tip that you no. could give people to kind of get get their leadership mojo back, get back on track with their goals. What I have seen when we do the intensives where we bring leaders in and we actually work through the pro- the exercises in the book is that bringing their own life goals into all of their goals. So not just limiting their goals to their whatever their performance improvement for their job is, but also invariably how people come up to me and say, "Hey Mark, on my list, can I can I include gardening? Because I've really wanted to get back into gardening. And I don't know, but does that count here? And it's, yeah, it's your list. You can include whatever you want. And so the way I do it uh, is, as you know, from the book is a hundred, it lists out a hundred things you want to do in the next year or in your life. But what that I've seen that help different personality types too. People that haven't have been goal averse because when they write it down, they're morally obligated. They feel morally obligated to accomplish it. When they're forced to write a hundred, they told me it broke through their averseness to it because they realized there is no way I can do all this. Mm-hmm. And so then they start having fun and that brings yourself and the other parts of you back into the picture. And I think if there were one thing that people, leaders could change in goal setting is to do that. And it's not like you have to do a fanfare and you know balloon drop and get t-shirts for everyone. I'm including my own goals. You just start living a life of integrity. You start yes. living a life of change and people are going to notice. And then they'll yeah. ask you, why you don't seem as stressed or you seem to you seem to have more margin or whatever it is that your the goals help you to do but it's because you're you know that you're at home or in your family or in your community obligations you've got those included on what you're trying to get done for the year so you can be fully at work when you're at work and you can be fully at home when you're home thank you well that's a fantastic note to end on 
Um, how can people find you and get in touch? I am on most of the uh, most all the socials. Not yet. Tic- I'm on TikTok. I haven't created anything, but oh, cool. uh, it's Mark, Mark with a C, Pittman with one T. On Twitter is where I'm most active, which is Mark A. Pittman and Concord Leadership Group. Uh, if people want to get that goal setting booklet, a, a workbook version of it, they can go to concordleadershipgroup.com slash magnet goals, magnet goals mm-hmm. altogether. And that's a free download that people can have. All right. Well, we'll link up to everything in the show notes. Thank you so much for your generosity, your fantastic spirit. You're just just exuding through the screen. And I really hope that we can get together in person soon. One of these days. All right. Thanks so much, Mark. Thank you. Well, hey there. I wanted to say thank you for tuning into my show and for listening all the way to the end. If you really enjoyed today's conversation, make sure to subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app, and you'll get new episodes downloaded as soon as they come out. I would love if you left me a rating or a review because this tells other people that my podcast is worth listening to. And then me and my guests can reach even more earbuds and create even more impact. So that's pretty much it. I'll be back soon with a brand new episode. But until then, you can find me on Instagram at juliacampbell77. Keep changing the world, you nonprofit unicorn. Oh,